Welcome to the P4C podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 13 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2021 Scripture, the Ultimate Authority. We now join Phil Bracey for today's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. Anyway, today I have the privilege of bringing to you a slice out of church history, a backdrop, if you will. Sometimes we wonder, where is doctrine formed? How does it come into being from roughly A.D. 45, when Paul began writing the first of those uh, letters that he had crafted all the way through until ballpark late A.D., maybe 90, 95, somewhere in there, when John would have penned uh, the book of Revelation. And by then, everything was written and laid down, codified, and the canon came into being, much to the debate of the Catholic Church. So I'm going to take a slice out of this, and I want to rewind the hands of time for a moment with you. Let's drop back to the year 1517. For some of you, you'll recall that was the genesis, the beginning point of the Reformation. Wittenberg, Germany, small little village, and sitting in the middle of town back then, of course, is this little village was the Castle Church. The church at that time, as in any other town, formed the center of community, the center of life. This little town, you could walk from one end to the other in about 15 minutes, so I estimate that to be roughly one mile. One little dirt road entering in, and as you hit the town off that dirt road, There's the castle church right in front of you. To the right, down the road, the Augustinian cloister, if you will. That's where the Catholic monks resided, Luther being one of those. And to the left was the castle complex uh, occupied by Frederick the Wise. One historian described this place as a poor, unattractive town. Old, small, ugly wooden houses, a village, not a town. Compared to Prague, hardly worth three farlings, not even worthy to be a town. Alleys, paths full of debris. Luther's uh, opponents said that a single monk out of such a hole could undertake a reformation is not to be tolerated. Well, his opponents obviously underestimated that anything of importance could come out of such a place. Hey, but then Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. In Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now I want to take you back to 1517. Think for a moment, it's Sunday morning. You get one choice, one church in town. There are no other options. There's no Baptists, no Presbyterians, no Friends, no Brethren, no Calvary Chapel, no Bible churches, no EV Free. Nothing. You get one choice. You don't have a Bible to take because you don't own one. If you did, it wouldn't even be in English. It'd be in Latin. So you have no Bible in your native language. There's no Sunday school, no Bible study groups, no life groups, no resources with which to study the text. You have one sacramental sacerdotal system that was completely corrupt. This is your Sunday morning. 
You get one choice, that's it. Martin Luther comes onto the scene, lays out 95 theses or arguments, and he posts these to Facebook. Now, I know some historians would suggest he nailed it to the, to the door of the church there, probably went on to Facebook. But that really was the Facebook of the day because, you see, for a town like that, the church door was a community bulletin board. Everybody put everything up on the church door, and you would go by and see what's happening there in town. So it was not uncommon that he did this and nailing it to that bulletin board. His students saw this, copied, distributed it, and out it went. First case of something going viral. What was Luther debating? Two primary points of dispute. The question of authority, number one. Is it Jesus and the text, the scriptures, or is it the Pope and the church? There is a secondary issue I'll drill into that comes into play, and that is the right of private interpretation. But that question of authority, what or who is the final authority by which the conscience of a Christian is bound? Let me draw a contrast with two sections of Scripture for us to look at. Go with me to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to take a look in Luke at the authority of Christ. And then I'm going to contrast that with another section dealing with authority and tradition. Here in Luke 5, verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. But on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing a bed on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Here it is. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And of course he did. Here we see on display the authority of Christ. Now go backwards, if you will, over to Mark, Mark chapter 7. And we're going to take a look at a similar scene, but which the ramifications are quite a bit different. In Mark 7, beginning there in verse 1, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with his hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe 
such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, and as is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And this is where we find ourselves in 1517. Tradition, authority. Here in Mark, we see he is completely challenging this authority, challenging the religious leaders in their traditions. If you want to break down Mark 7, you have verses 1 to 5, a system of tradition, 6 through 8, the authoritative standard of Scripture, and 10 through 13, tradition and hypocrisy. This is a perfect description of the Roman Catholic Church at this time in in history, laden and steeped in hypocrisy and tradition, completely disregarding the authority of the text. What had happened is Rome had come along and had elevated tradition over scripture. Let me read for you just the basic principle out of the Westminster Confession, if you will, the definition of sola scriptura, scripture alone. In the Westminster Confession, it says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. It's the text that maintains and continues to hold authority. So here we are in 1517, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, living and teaching in this small little village town of Wittenberg, Germany, and he's about to take on the superstructure of the Roman Catholic Church. But for Martin, the primary issue was authority. When he posted his 95 arguments, this was designed to be a methodological process of debate among the academics. It was not to go out to the lay people. It's posted on the church, written in Latin. It had been translated now by his students from Latin into German, and it spread out. But he posted those arguments specifically on the church door. That was the process for bringing about debate between the academics. Three issues he wanted to address underneath this idea of authority. Indulgences, which is an incredible abuse, An indulgence is a payment, if you will, for grace. It reduces your sentence in purgatory, that being the second issue, the doctrine of purgatory. It's a temporary hell. When one dies, one goes to purgatory. You live and exist for a time there as you're purified and so forth to the point that you can now merit entrance into heaven. The third issue he wanted to address was what's called the treasury of merit a conceptual bank account in heaven where merit is built up. I'll talk about that in a moment. The Pope can take some of that merit, apply to somebody in purgatory, thus shortening their jail time, if you will. 
John, Johann Tetzel was a fundraiser for the Roman Catholic Church. He's out selling these indulgences. Paper document, you can Google it, you can find them. Still today, they're sold. You won't be able to read it because it's all in Latin. But to this day, you can still buy an indulgence. Think of it as a gift card or a get-out-of-jail-free card. You would buy it. It would reduce time for one of your relatives who had predeceased you, thus getting them out of purgatory early or free. If you paid enough, they're out. Tetzel understood the dynamics of what Luther was proposing and appealed to the German bishops and the Pope. He says, you need to stop Luther. He knew that in a debate, Luther would raise this issue of indulgences and doing so, others would begin to see the problems of this theological superstructure with tradition that they had erected over the Catholic system and it will collapse. Because at the center of this whole thing, it was built on the treasury of merit from which these indulgences were drawn by the Pope and applied to those in purgatory. So this treasury of merit, it's a concept. It's a bank account in heaven, if you will. The Pope has the ATM card How does it build up merit? Well, Jesus, the ultimate one that would have dumped loads of merit into this account, the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and so forth, also realized merit, excess merit, that was dumped into this account, and what they call works of supererogation. Think Mother Teresa, all the tremendous work she did here, heaped up merit, that excess merit went into the bank account. From all this merit that's built up over the years and centuries of these saints, the Pope can withdraw some of this merit and apply it to somebody in purgatory. That concept is still in force today, reducing the time shortened for purification till you're righteous enough to make it into heaven. Luther had the audacity to question this idea of the treasury of merit. Germany and Rome, they reacted, went into hyperdrive. We've got to shut him down. We must shut down his views on this. Frederick the Wise, the castle complex there at the one end of this small town, he and Luther were good, good friends. Frederick was going to protect his favorite professor. So he went through the process of scheduling out, if you will, the hearings and debates so that he could oversee and look out for Luther. He understood if Luther was in any other country, he was a dead man. As it is right now, he's a dead man walking. Frederick was powerful, politically connected, and most importantly, a patron, a financier of Wittenberg. He had great wealth. What Luther was requesting at that point was quite simple. I just want an opportunity to present my views. According to canon law, when there's a disagreement within the church, you convene a hearing. Church councils would take the debate under advisement and render a verdict. That's all I'm asking for. I want an opportunity to debate, have a council hear this. This is going to be done with other academics, other theologians, I'm not asking for something that goes against protocol. And yet, Rome would not allow the hearing. But via Frederick, 
he arranged a debate in Augsburg, Germany. This is now 1518. Then it was called Leipzig, and then it became Worms. The debate, which was really a trap that had been set up and arranged, with another cardinal, Cardinal, cardinal Cajetan. This cardinal, at the inception of the debate, launched and disallowed Luther his presentation. He immediately went into it and said, look, you need to recant. You need to recant your positions. You need to recant the documents that you've written. We're not here to debate. We're here for you to recant your position on Christ, the text, and the authority of the church that you're debating. So he maneuvers Luther into, here's a letter, and this letter deals with the authority of the pope or papal authority, if you will. Showing Luther was challenging the Pope's authority. But for Luther, the Pope's authority wasn't the highest authority. Papal authority was assumed and believed at that time and continued on through the 19th century when it was codified at Vatican I in 1869. Not that long ago. At that point, it was codified the Pope is the authority figure. He's infallible. It was assumed up to 1869, but they codified it. So what, what, what Luther is essentially saying, by what authority? At that point, it's game on. He has just challenged the authority of the Roman giant. You've challenged papal authority. This spilled over into the Leipzig debate another year later, 1519, when Luther was confronted by his friend who turned on him, John Eck, a gifted debater. Eck, in this debate with Luther, brought up other past principles that John Huss had espoused. John Huss previously had been condemned for much the same thing as Luther burned at the stake. Eck brings all this up and says, you know what? Everything that Huss was talking about funny, that's the same stuff you're talking about. You seem to agree with with John Huss, putting Luther into a corner. So Luther's challenge now to deny the decisions of the church councils, the papal letters, the papal encyclicals, and letters of authority. That's the corner they put him in. You deny it? And he knew. He knew. He saw the the precursor. They They burned my friend at the stake yeah, I think I'm probably next if, if, if I don't deny this. Luther says, you know, I assent that a council may err and contradict each other, and although may be above the Pope, a council may not make divine that which is not found in Scripture. In fact, He went so far as to say a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above the pope or cardinal that does not have the scripture. He says, I reject councils and papal authority. We can learn, but it is not divine. Completely antagonistic to the church position of that day. This whole thing developed, continued to escalate, and by, nine, by 1521, another event called the Diet at Worms, 
And this was where they forced him into a position of recanting all of his writings, all of his beliefs. We want a full recanting of you, Luther, for all essentially that you believe. He summoned to appear before the emperor there at Worms, asking for a full recanting and nothing less. Luther says, look, they propose it, day one, book stacked up on the, on the desk. This is all of your writings. This set of books, this is all you believe. We want a full recanting of all of this. He said, let me think on it. We'll reconvene tomorrow. I'll give you an answer tomorrow. So that spilled into the next day. They reassembled. Are you ready to recant? He said, look, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. Here it is. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. At that point, he was, quote, allowed to leave Worms. They'd already set up a kidnapping and an execution program in place to get him when he left. At that point, the emperor imposed what was called the Imperial Edict or the Wormser Edict. What it said was, Luther has been branded an obstinate, schismatic, and manifest heretic and hereby is declared an outlaw. Anybody may kill him without threat of punishment. It's a free-for-all. Anybody can get him, go get him. So on the way home, back to Wittenberg, our good friend Friedrich de Wise had already set up a plan and had Luther kidnapped in order to guarantee his safety to get him back to the castle complex. In the castle complex, he then sat down and began translating the entire Greek New Testament from Latin into German. Into German. By 1546, more than a half a million copies of this translation were in the hands of the people, broad scale. This is what's become the principle or the basis, if you will, of sola scriptura, scripture alone. The rally cry of the Reformation, you have five solas, sola scriptura, faith, sola fide, faith alone, grace, grassi, sola grassi, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God, and uh, sheesh, I'm missing the fifth one. Thank you, solus Christus, Christ alone. Okay, notice the key word, alone. That's the key. Only God, through his word, can bind the conscience. Only the word of God can bind the conscience as the absolute authority. Church documents, creeds, councils are summaries and can be helpful at times to learn and understand, but only God's word can stand above 
as final authority. And so you've got now out of that evolved these five solas. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org. Or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we listen to part two of this message. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for his glory each and every day.